Good morning, church. Uh, it's good to be with you again this morning. Uh, hopefully this is the last time we will be in this format for a very long time, but we'll see what God has for us. You can turn in your Bibles to Philippians 2. If you remember, Andrew and I are going through the book of Philippians any time we have a chance to preach. And so we're going to be in Philippians 2 this morning. It's a very familiar passage, a very powerful passage. And so I hope that we all just glean so much of what God has for us this morning in Philippians chapter 2. I was supposed to preach this passage uh, on the 16th of May, according to our rotor that we had set up, but uh, someone, they'll remain nameless, really wanted to preach on the 16th of May. I don't know why, uh, but that nameless person who has a very similar haircut as myself, uh, I was glad to let them preach on the 16th. Uh, and so we are in Philippians uh, chapter 2, and I want to ask you a question. Would you agree with me that we love to see humility in others? Uh, athletes, for example, we love good sportsmanship. I mean, it's just something that we look at and it's enjoyable to watch. We love when a runner uh, falls and someone else, another runner, comes up behind them and, and helps them to the finish line. We love to see humility in leaders. When, when a boss gets into the thick of it with us, that's encouraging. I had a, a, a principal, I was a teacher for many years, and I had a principal who also taught classes. Uh, he didn't have to do that, but he knew that being in the thick of it, being right there in the front lines of teaching was a way to serve us. And it was a humble way to say, I'm here with you in this. Uh, we also uh, like to see this in our church leaders when we see pastors and elders serving and loving uh, by setting up chairs and just kind of doing the nitty gritty things. We, we love to see that. Uh, we also, if we're honest, we, we like to see the arrogant humbled. We rejoice when that cocky team is slaughtered by the underdog. Uh, that, just, that just brings us joy often, unless, of course, the team that got slaughtered was the one you root for. Uh, we also find sweet equity when rich embezzlers are caught and all their money is taken away. Uh, we find poetic justice when a prideful dictator is taken down by the very people that he is oppressing. Part of this is a longing for justice. And part of it is just that we love to see the haughty brought low. We love to see the prideful brought low. Thus far, in this letter, Paul has uh, really wanted the Philippians to be of one mind. And that requires humility. Uh, and most of us, want that too. We want unity. We crave working together for the kingdom in unity. We want to be humbly side by side with each other as church members. The problem is, the, the problem is, is that I want your mind to be like mine. I want you to think like me. I want you to prioritize like me. And I want you to love like me. And when you don't do that, you're just wrong. I'm sorry. You're just wrong. But let's be honest, you want me to think like you. And so we can go from these good desires of, of wanting to humbly work alongside each other to these sinful, uh, prideful um, moments in, in just a, a twinkling of an eye. 
We love to see humility in others. It is just really, really hard to practice that ourselves. So Paul just finished encouraging the Philippians uh, in um, the end of, of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. To, that they should stand with each other. They should stand with each other as citizens of heaven. They should stand with each other in community. They should stand with each other against opposition. And he said that they should stand for each other as, as eternal soulmates, really. Uh, eternal soulmates in heaven. But the question is, is how? How do we do this? Um, when we so want to see our own way, when we want others to think of us and love like us, and prioritize like us, how do we stand for and with each other as these eternal soulmates that he has told us that we are? We look to Christ. We look at his life. We look at this glorious merger of humanity and divinity. We look at his sacrifice, and we are just humbled by his glorification. So here in Philippians chapter 2, Paul is calling us to think like Jesus. I'm going to read uh, from chapter 2. I'm going to start at verse 1, where we ended last time I preached, and I'm going to go down to verse 11. So follow along with me, Philippians 2, 1 to 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And this is our text, verse 5 here. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray as we, as we dive into these verses. Father, we need your help this morning. It's hard to, to listen over this medium. It's hard to preach, honestly, in this, in this medium. And so, Father, we all need your help to hear from you this morning. Please, Lord, meet us as we look at Jesus and we want to have his mind. We want to think like him. Help us to see that together this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So my first point this morning is that Christ took the low path at the very, very beginning. Jesus became human. This, this fact alone is enough to ponder for all eternity. The second person of the Godhead, the very Son of God, entered into a human womb. From the glories of heaven into the perils and hardships of a womb. God and human flesh being born feels almost, almost 
like an assault on the holiness of God. Brendan has uh, been pointing us to the holiness of God, his perfection, his glory, his, his set-apartness. And yet, he did come, and he was born in the likeness of men. Um, and it's not an assault on his holiness, but sometimes it feels like this, that because a birth isn't pretty. Uh, if you've been to one, you know. Uh, births are messy, painful, sobering. Uh, it's a period for both mom and baby of just being exposed and very vulnerable. Uh, this is not where you expect to find the king of all creation. But it is. The Lord Jesus Christ subjected himself to this very thing. Paul says in these verses that he emptied himself. Let's, let's be very clear to note that that does not mean that Christ was any less God because he entered a womb. Christ did not empty himself by subtracting anything. Christ emptied himself by adding humanity to his very self. And so when we look at this, the Son of God emptied himself... Because he became human. It's a bit confusing to think that you empty yourself by adding to yourself. But if you are God and you are, you are ever existent. And if you have been in the heavenlies and spirit for all eternity. And then you, you subject yourself to a human form. That is emptying yourself. So it might feel confusing. And I think it's a deep truth. And it's something that we will ponder for a long time. But we have a very big God. Paul writes to the Corinthians that Christ was rich and yet he became poor. That in weakness he was crucified. He put on a body that could die. If you are an eternal God, this is most definitely emptying yourself. Putting on a body that could die? The Son of God emptied himself by adding humanity, not by subtracting. Jesus was born. He had to learn. He had to learn to crawl. He had to learn to walk. He had to learn to talk. The Son of God had to learn how to use the toilet. I mean, and even in the first century, there weren't even toilets. It was even worse than that. He had to endure puberty and hormones as a teenager. And in all of this, Paul says... Here in verse 6, that he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. Meaning, he did not hold his divinity as an advantage. Jesus surrendered his rights. The second person of the Trinity, the very Son of God, from eternity past, surrendered his rights. Brother and sister, do you want to live with unity with each other? Do you want to stand with each other and for each other? If we do, if we want that, we have to surrender our rights or what we might perceive <clears throat> as rights. The problem is that in our day and age and in our culture, we are told that personal autonomy is necessary, right, and good. Personal autonomy is this idea that we should govern ourselves by our own values and our own ideas. We know what's best for us. The problem 
with this thinking is that it's unbiblical. We cannot have personal autonomy. It's actually not possible. Uh, If God is sovereign, and he is, then personal autonomy is not only something we should condemn, it is something that can't even exist in God's economy, because God is sovereign. Personal autonomy is like antifreeze. You, you know that stuff that you put into your car? It's part of your coolant. It keeps the, the, the stuff inside that cools your engines from, engine from freezing in the winter. Uh, antifreeze, if you were to taste it, I never have and I don't recommend it, it's really, really sweet, apparently. And this can be an issue uh, with animals who might get a hold of it. It's really sweet. So it, you just want to take it in and take it in and take it in. The problem is, is that it kills you pretty quickly. Personal autonomy feels really good, and it tastes really good, but it leads us to death. Death of relationships, death in holiness, uh, death of submission to God is where personal autonomy leads us. We are called to surrender our rights, surrender any sense of autonomy that we don't even have anyways. We can can we? Can we love each other by surrendering our right to be heard? Can you surrender your right to be heard and thus love someone else better? Can we love each other by surrendering our right to be understood? Can we love each other by surrendering our right to be right? Imagine if we lived life together such that we listen with empathy, we forgive misunderstandings, And and we're actually okay when someone disagrees with us. Jesus is God. If anyone has the right to be heard, it is the one that created the ear and the air and the very physics of what it means to hear. If anyone has the right to be understood, it is the one who knows all things. If anyone has the right to be right, It is the one that has never and will never be wrong. Jesus entered a world that did not listen to him, that completely misunderstood him, and that killed him for his false teaching. He was wrong. And for his blasphemy against God. Brothers and sisters, if our Lord did these things, should we not have that same mind? The king took on the form of a servant. Who does that? What king does that? What king comes down from his throne and becomes a servant? This is our God. He took the low point from the very beginning of entering this world. Point two. Christ took the low path at the end. Not only did the Lord Jesus enter this world with humility, He left it in humility. Look at verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself and became obedient. In the Garden of Gethsemane, right before the Lord was arrested uh, and then beaten, and then crucified. Right before that, in this garden, we have this beautiful picture of the Lord's faithful obedience. You don't have to turn there, but in Matthew 26, the account goes like this. 
And going a little farther into the garden, going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We see in this, this beautiful display of humanity and this amazing display of divine love that is in Jesus. His humanity must be screaming, this is hard, this will hurt, is there no other way? Make no mistake, Jesus was not reluctantly going to the cross, but in his humanity he was fully aware of what was coming. But he did it anyways. He chose the hard, painful, agonizing path. He did something we, we could not do. I don't just mean going to the cross. I don't mean that he just did that. That's something that we can't do. I mean his perfect obedience. From birth until this point, there was never anything that Jesus said or thought or did that was against the will of the Father. Ponder that for a moment. Ponder a life completely in subjection to the will of the Father. Perfect obedience. And that perfectly obedient one was willing to be completely shamed and killed. Who would do that? Like I said, it's a display of his humanity and his divinity. His divine love is screaming, Father, let your glorious plan come to pass. My sheep are worth the pain, the separation, and the agony of this cross. It is joy set before me. Why? Why, why would there be joy set before him? What kind of masochistic person finds joy in, pers- in, in crucifixion? Well, that's it, though. The joy is not the crucifixion. And Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It's not the cross itself that he was finding joy in. It was the payment of a debt and a willingness to obey the Father. Have you ever paid off a debt? A car, maybe a house, or maybe just a personal loan? There's really joy in not being in bondage to that debt. It frees you. It frees you. Have you ever paid someone else's debt? Have you ever paid someone else's debt? One time, years ago, as a a means of discipline, I gave some lines to one of our children. Write this 50 times. But then I actually wrote them myself for my child. And I don't know if they remember that. But I hope they do, and I hope they see the picture of the gospel that I was trying to show them. Jesus paid a debt he did not owe. Why? Why would he do that? The same reason I did it for my child. Love. Jesus loves you, brother. Jesus loves you, sister. Children, listening, Jesus loves you. 
those who have had a terrible experience with, with relationships and your earthly father on this world or, or, or anyone else who you feel like no one's ever loved you, let me declare to you, because the scripture declares that, that Jesus loves you more than you could ever, ever know. He is love. He's not just loving. He is love. This is our God. Do you know why the universe is the way that it is? Why history has played out and unfolded the way that it has? Do you know why Jesus died? Because there isn't another universe that could exist that still shows us the deep, deep love of God like this universe. How do I know this? Because what comes to pass, what actually happens, is the will of God. And the will of God can only flow out of who God is. There could not be a universe where Jesus does not come and die. That universe would never exist. This is who Jesus is. He is love, and he is humility, and he is sacrifice. He's obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see the humility of our God? Do you see it? The most evil and painful way to die in existence at that time was the cross. And the Lord Jesus hung on it for you. And he hung on it for me. Listen to this description that Matthew gives in chapter 27 about this, this time where Jesus is on the cross. Starting at verse 37, chapter 27. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Can you imagine having infinite power? Jesus has infinite power. That's omnipotence. It's the fancy word for that. He's all-powerful. Power to change water into wine. Power to calm a storm. Power to multiply food. Power to even stop death. Can you imagine having this power and then sitting through this mocking and this shame and this hate and not doing anything? Can you imagine? Jesus tells Peter in just a few verses prior to what I just read in, in Matthew 26, he tells Peter, after Peter pulls out a sword, he's ready to defend Jesus, and he, says, he tells him to put away the sword, and he says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? In 2 Kings 19, one angel slaughtered 185,000 soldiers in one day. Twelve legions is about 72,000 angels. And Jesus' point was, 
Don't you think that I could call on my father and he would send me angels that would annihilate the entire planet? Because 72,000, if you do the math, angels, is billions and billions of people, more people than even were alive at the time when Jesus said that. Jesus was not overpowered. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why did Jesus suffer in this way? He suffered to rescue us. Romans, Paul tells us in Romans, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What is Paul trying to tell the Philippians here? What is the Holy Spirit trying to tell us in, in the word of God here? He's trying to tell them, and we're, we need to hear this too, that faith feels like death. But the goal, the result of faith, is love. Jesus began his life on earth by taking the low path. And he finished his life on earth by taking the low path. Paul is saying to us, have this same mindset. Take the low path. Philippians 2, I read it. I'm going to read it again. Verses 2 to 5. This is what Paul's calling the Philippians to complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. When we walk by faith to see Christ's church grow in passage west, it will feel like death. It is hard being part of such a small group. This requires dying to self. It is hard not having our own building and leaving church smelling a little bit moldy. That requires dying to self. It is hard having to serve in the same ways week after week. That requires dying to self. It is hard loving people from different cultures. That requires dying to self. It is hard to live faithfully in a country that wants nothing to do with your faith. That requires dying to self. It is hard to talk to people on Sunday who are very different than you. That requires dying to self. And it is hard... Submitting to imperfect leaders. That requires dying to self. This is what faith feels like, brother and sister. It may be hard at the beginning. This, this church plant, it's going to be hard at the beginning. Like Jesus' birth was hard. Entering a new world like an infant was hard. But be sure it will be even harder as we move forward. It may feel like death. But it results in love. And it results in new life. Look at what the death of Jesus accomplished. New life. And he calls us to do the same. He calls us to die. Jack Miller, who is uh, a believer who's now with the Lord, and he was the founder of the organization that I, I work for, he's quoted in inviting people to to be on mission and inviting people <clears throat> to live sacrificially. And he, he's known to say, would you come and die? That was his invitation. 
Come and die. And I think that's our invitation. Come and die to self together. And the scripture speaks of this. Paul in Galatians 2, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm crucified, and yet I live. As we die to self, the seeds of new life will sprout around us. People will see God's love in us as we love each other well, and it will be an aroma of life to those he is calling to himself. And while faith feels like death, and it's really hard, we must remember that that is a temporary feeling. And Paul reminds us of this, my final point. The low path leads to the high path. Let me read again from Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus did not earn his exaltation. Let's be clear on that. He is the exalted one. The place of exaltation is not given because of his work. The work only shows to creation that exaltation is due him. What we have here is the supernatural truth that God exalts the humble. There is no one more humble than Jesus, and there is no one more exalted than Jesus. God in his goodness and his glory is making sure that fact is known through all creation, because one day every single knee will bow. Picture that. Picture that glorious scene. However it's going to look where Jesus is lifted up for everyone to see, and every knee will bow down to him. Because he is do that. See that image. May that fuel your weary soul this morning. The father is giving his son the most superior name above all names. The word there means he freely gives. The father is not under compulsion. It's not because of what Jesus has done. He's giving it out of love and honor for his son. And that name that's above every name... Most scholars don't think that that name is Jesus. It's Lord. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Lord. And what we see here is the amazing fact that the Trinity, the Godhead, is other-centered. It is true that God is for his glory, and that is due him. So everything that happens is for the glory of God. But just look at the way it's expressed here. Jesus willingly obeys the Father to the point of death. And the Father freely exalts the Son. And this is what Paul wants us to see. We have a God who thinks of others. Can we not also think of others? Yes, faith feels like death. 
But brother and sister, in the end, you too will be exalted. Not to the position of Jesus, but to his side, where you will reign with him for eternity. Die to self. This is the only means to love God and love others well. And if you are listening this morning and have not already bowed your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, I beg you, would you bow today? Trust him for your salvation. He lived the perfect life that you can't live. He was punished for your sin and he was raised to life, conquering death and conquering the grave. Will you bow to him today? One day, one day all will bow to him. But if you choose to bow today, if you don't choose to bow today, rather, there's no hope for you in that day. There's no hope for you when you bow out of compulsion because you are forced to bow. You'll be separated from the amazing love of God forever. So invite, I invite us all, and this is myself included, just like Jack invited those. I long to meet Jack one day in glory. I invite us all to come and die. Come and die and walk this amazing journey of a new life in faith together. Together. Come and die.